Welcome back to Humans of Medicine, a podcast where we interview and learn about different types of people in medicine and research. This conversation is with Max, an Adelaide-born ANU graduate, cricket fanatic, and passionate researcher who's headed to Oxford later this year as a Rhodes Scholar. I currently work with Max in a research lab at UCID. As well as being a great human and research buddy, he's also extremely passionate and goes deep into areas he cares about, which is why I'm particularly keen to share this conversation. We talked about his journey and how different mentors have guided him, as well as what he'll be working on as computational neuroscience PhD and his perspective on all the exciting developments around AI. Hope you enjoy. Thanks, Max, for hopping onto the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. So I want to start off talking a little bit about your journey so far. Yep. What made you interested in the two worlds of research and medicine? Yeah, um, so I think it's a little bit cheesy to say, but I've always sort of been naturally curious. Uh, I think for me, it's not enough to just uh, be presented with a concept. It's always about you know understanding why mm-hmm. why that concept might have come about or why it might be so. Um, you know, for example, like in, in a neuroscience class, it it might not be just understanding that there's a relate like there's a logarithmic relationship between action potential frequency and, and current stimulus. It's like, <laughs> well, why is it actually the case if we mm. have these neurons if we have you know the physiological conditions in our body? Uh, and that can be annoying sometimes, right? Like, you know, yeah. you just get presented with something and you're like, oh, okay, I understand it now. But it's like, no, 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 why is that the case? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think for me, research obviously fits really nicely with that in terms of giving you a chance to explore the unknown in, in whatever way uh, you might like to look at. It. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, for example, in the undergraduate projects that I was exposed to at the ANU and during my honours year, I think there's a really cool feeling that you get when you're the first person in the world to actually know something yeah for sure. whether it's in like a little lab little lab room in canberra <laughs> you know that you're the first person to actually have seen that result or make that discovery however small or, or big it is mm. um, and so i think that that really sort of fitted in nicely with my natural curiosity mm. um in terms of medicine i think obviously i haven't you know done medicine i've started medicine i've been, been accepted but it's still a long way away yeah. as we've talked yeah, yeah. about um i think that really just just sort of fulfills my interest in like a variety of different different subjects. Um, like something I haven't told you is that uh, I was initially planning on studying history um, okay. in the UK oh, after, right. after I finished year twelve. Interesting. Um, and I was really interested in you know the humanities and the Israel Palestine conflict, mm. you know, the Chinese Revolution, and I sort of had this love of the humanities that mm. I wanted to continue to explore mm. uh, in my career. But at the same time, obviously, was really interested in you know science and physics in, in human biology, mm. um, and I felt for me medicine was a really nice way of looking at that intersection and um, actually fulfilling that intersection mm. in terms of having that interpersonal relationship, that maintaining that love of the humanities mm. whilst also having that focus um, on science, which obviously medicine is. Mm. Um, so I think that's probably what drew uh, what drew me to to, to medicine mm. um, in the first place, but how I'll continue to go about that will, yeah, I guess we'll see gotcha. going forward. So a core driver of curiosity kind of brought you to all these different areas. Absolutely, yeah. And we should totally talk about the Chinese Civil War offline sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> That's in, I did not know that. I would not confess. I would not say I'm an expert about it at all. But it's definitely interesting. A history buff. I always <laughs> knew you were, Max. I always knew you were. Yeah, right. So I guess talking about those, you know, some of the experiences you've already mentioned, such mm-hmm. as your research and your undergraduate, 
What would you say have been some of the most paradigm shifting moments that have changed your career direction, whether it's from a specific lab you joined or, you know, obviously the Rhodes Scholarship, which we'll talk a little bit later as well, or um, what, what moments have kind of changed how you think about certain topics or research areas? Yeah, so I think like a good one straight away, just stemming from our conversations with like research and medicine. Uh, I joined the lab of Riccardo Natoli uh, at the start of 2021 um, at the ANU. And he had this great saying, which was like, you know, medical researchers, uh, they're the people that, that write the, the, the manual about how to fix the car. Mm-hmm. And then doctors are the ones that read the manual and implement it. Yeah. Makes right. sense. Yeah, yeah. It ma- makes complete sense, but I'd never really thought of it that mm. way because, you know, medical research, they're always working away in their little silos, they're mm. working on little projects, yeah. super niche projects, and then doctors are sort of at the cold face actually solving these problems. That's right. Um, and so I think that was a sort of a big paradigm shift in, I was kind of like, well, wow, maybe I can try and integrate these fields. I can mm. both help write that manual, but then also implement it mm. from, from bench to bedside, right? Yeah, classic. Um, which is obviously that classic saying. Yeah. So I, I suppose that was one paradigm shift mm-hmm. in terms of the way I look at integrating research and, and medicine and, and made me want to pursue a career as a, as a clinician scientist. Mm. Um, I think uh, another big one was early on in, uh, or at the end of 2019, when I actually switched degrees. Mm. Um, so I started off doing a, a Bachelor of Applied Data Analytics at the ANU, and I sort of got to the end of, of that uh, first year, and uh, I'd been been lucky enough to be around uh, a really close mentor of mine, uh, Lachlan Dymel, who actually just finished his DPhil at Oxford um, as a Clarendon Scholar, really cool, congrats. cool guy. Um, awesome. well, yeah, congrats to him. <laughs> um, yeah, he's doing vaccine immunology, so it's um, very relevant. Very relevant at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, "Have you ever, you know, considered just like trying out a bunch of different stuff? Like, why are you?" Limiting, limiting. Mm. You know, you've you've tried applied analytics. Cool, like it's lots of cool subjects, bit of maths, bit of comp sci. But mm-hmm. um, have you ever, you know, just thought about trying a bunch of different stuff and seeing mm. if you can just excel in maybe like all of it or just try all the different subjects? And I was like, you know what? No, I actually haven't. Mm. And it sort of required that like mentorship to be like, you know what? You can do this. Like you shouldn't feel like you should just be limiting yourself to, to one degree. Mm. Why don't you try all of this stuff? Why don't you try and on this year that was embedded in the degree um, and actually just, just take that leap of faith? Mm. Um, and so I suppose that wasn't really a paradigm shift. It was yeah. more like having that mentorship from an older student and just to you know give you the confidence to actually be able to make that change. Um, and that was a yeah, really big, big change in my degree from having some of this specialised applied data analytics, which is like this hyper-specialized mm. degree, mm. to more of a general um, degree in uh, Bachelor of Philosophy Science, which allowed me to study things like, you know, maths, neuroscience, medical mm. research, bioinformatics, etc. cetera, mm. um, which I thought, yeah, was, was a really cool moment. And what I look back on now being like, wow, it's, it was obviously quite significant, even though I probably didn't realize it at the time. For sure. It's interesting that you say that, because I feel like those two kind of paradigm shift moments you talked about is something I'm hearing more and more of undergraduate students. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, have you, that classic computer algorithm, um, explore versus exploit. Yeah. Yeah, right? That's kind of what you're doing with tr- trying out a generalized different amount of fields and figuring out, oh, this is the one I want to go for. Mm. And the other side of things is the idea of moving a lever on a greater scale, the impact side, right? When I think yeah. of bench to bedside, obviously the doctors at the coalface have that super tangible, super direct impact to the patient. Absolutely. But research and those other fields, which, you know, the other parts of the podcast have chatted about, 
change it on a greater scale. Mm. And so on that kind of topic of making those decisions or, you know, your mentors influencing you, what would you say have been your North stars or key values that have guided your, your decisions as well? So coming more intrinsically as opposed to from those mentors. Yeah, I suppose like that has come from my parents primarily. Uh, so I think if there's one sort of not necessarily value, but the trait that trumps everything else in my life, it's, it's this uh, trait of working hard basically. Mm. Um, and that's really come about through the experiences and the, and the teachings of, of my parents. So my dad was from uh, like a, f- a very sort of uh, heavy working class background, mm-hmm. um, had to you know spend five, six years saving enough money to go to university um, and then has just like toiled away for you know, 50 years yeah. to, to, to give you know myself and my sister a good chance at a good education and a, and a good life. And similarly, my mom uh, moved all the way to Australia from Germany when she was 25 years of age. Mm. Uh, again, to you know, give us the chance um, of you know having an education, having a, a mm. career here in Australia. Um, and so I think they really instilled upon me the value and the importance of hard work and the importance of, of working towards something that is perhaps bigger than yourself. Mm. Um, and I think the second part then, which is maybe not, I don't maybe embody as much, is um, that's not sad. I don't embody it. Uh, <laughs> is like working hard but also being kind at the same time yes that was yeah. something we were like taught a lot of at school um, but i think it's like it's a thing that's missing a lot in our society it's mm. just like being kind to other people around you that's in right. your everyday life mm. um, and i think you can embody that in a variety of ways but it's something that yeah i, I try and live by what would you say i would say you're very kind max oh, thank you. Yeah. you help the no. you help us <laughs> out and all that you know th- thanks for sharing um it's interesting because obviously that classic, you know, hard work comes from, there's so many family stories where you hear hard work is instilled into your kids. Yeah. And it's also that classic immigrant story as well and that social mobility. Uh, yeah, I think social mobility is a, is a huge one. Huge driver. Uh, especially yeah. like as a child, potentially experiencing mm. that transition of social mobility. Mm. I think that is like really impactful. It's what it has been for me and I'm sure it is right. for a lot of other people as well. For sure. Um, moving away more to kind of your neuroscience just yeah. now, um, I'm keen to talk a little bit about your incoming PhD at Oxford with uh, Prof. Behrens. Um, tell me a little bit about your projects, what's getting you excited right now when you're leaving off in a few months, and what drew you to this particular topic as well? Yeah, um, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm super excited, first of all. Oh, yeah. It's Oxford <laughs> uh, in September. Um, basically, my, my project will be looking at the way the brain, in its broadest sense, represents information and how it represents information in relation to specific problems or, or, or tasks. Um, and so my project is basically using animal models to try and find biological algorithms mm-hmm. in which, uh, in, in which a- animals represent different information when solving a task. Mm. So, um, you know, for example, you have a schema in your brain when you go to the restaurant, you know, that you sit down at the restaurant, you get a menu, Mm. you look at the menu, I like the hamburger, Mm. I choose the hamburger, I order the hamburger, I eat the hamburger. Yeah, right. And your brain is somehow creating this schema Mm. and and knows what to expect. Or like, um, you know, when someone's giving a presentation, this is borrowed from from Tim, um, they know that after the introduction, There'll be some words and there'll be some cool data presented, mm. right? 
And so we're basically trying to build models or understand the way the brain is building models mm. uh, to represent this information and have this predictive capability, if that makes sense. Interesting. Um, and so in its simplest form, if we have you know a mouse going from A to B to C to D, mm. and it's exposed to A to B to C to D, and then it's going to be able to infer that it needs to go back to A to restart that sequence. Mm. It's building that model. It's building that abstract model of that task mm. and then being able to follow it. Mm. And so we really want to understand how that's actually happening and what is sort of the precise neuronal behavior in the mm. neurons, how they're firing, how they're working together, that's actually um, creating that form of behavior. Mm. It's, a, it's a pretty abstract yeah. like, concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's also going to your question is like why I'm so excited about it. Mm. Um, because I think, you know, it also has huge parallels to you know, artificial intelligence at the moment. And, you know, we have these large language models like, GPT-4 or BARD, they have this ability to form like zero-shot inference. Mm. So they can all of a sudden, when presented with a novel task, um, you know, solve it, even though they've never seen yes. it in their training set before. That's right. And so it's the same thing, you know, with these with these mice and, and, and their behavior in terms of they might see a brand new maze with this same with this same structure of the problem, you know, A, B, C, D, mm. and all of a sudden they can infer, you know, that they need to go from D to A. Mm. Um, and so I think that's another thing that's getting me really excited is if we can maybe understand how, you know, the brain is performing this zero-shot inference, maybe we can, you know, abstract that and put it on, for, uh, for example, a large language model. Maybe we can dig a little bit into the black box and understand how it's maybe making some of these predictions in, in novel environments. Um, so I think that's, yeah, I've talked a lot, but I think no, that's no, what, no. what's making me really excited as well. Makes sense. And given the current context with obviously the hype around ChatGPT and yeah. deep neural nets language models, you can see why this would be very relevant post four years when you finish with your PhD. Yeah, yeah. DeepMind's um, going to watch you for sure. Uh, we'll, we'll see about that. We'll see mm. about that. But it's also, I think, going to like neurodegenerative diseases, mm. um, aside from sort of like the physiological effects where we have, you know, neurons dying or we have innate immunity you know, innate immune processes, inflammation occurring. Um, we've actually got, we know in schizophrenic populations and, and in patients with Alzheimer's, they have um, an impaired ability to represent these schemas and actually represent this information. And so if we can maybe understand which precise neurons are important or how they might fire together, mm. then we might actually be able to maybe understand a little bit more about, you know, why we have maybe memory decline or um, some of the phenotypes that we see in, in schizophrenic patients. So I think, yeah, it's obviously yeah. got applications to yeah. AI, but it's also yeah. got potentially huge ramifications for um, patients with psychiatric and neurodegenerative conditions. It's very interesting to see how you describe that very abstract problem initially, but I can see now all of the tangible real-world applications as well, which is also very exciting clinically and computationally. Yeah, and I think it's also... Like, as Tim says, if you have the ability to, like, mathematically model something, it mm. means that you must precisely understand it. For sure. Right? Yeah. And so in this whole nebulous world of neurodegenerative disease and understanding the brain, mm. if we can maybe make a small dent in, in modeling some way that it represents information, then I think that's a huge stride in, in progress to our understanding of you know, the brain and how it works. Yeah, it's like that classic saying, physics is applied math, yeah, chemistry yeah, is applied yeah, physics, exactly, biology. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, makes sense. And on, maybe briefly on the immunology point as well, I was curious, yeah. obviously, you know, your undergrad, you focus more on immunology and your research was also around that as well. How has that kind of informed some of your interest in that neurodegenerative space? Um, 
I would say that I spend my undergrad basically trying to do the coolest work with the best people. <laughs> yep. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I dabbled in a lot of different subjects. Uh, you know, I did a bit of um, sort of ophthalmology work with Ricardo. I did innate immunity. Um, I did some neuroimmune stuff down at Wehi. Mm. Um, I think one thing that really came out of that was my potential sort of hesitance to do more wet lab work. Preparing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Preparing and, you know, being in a lab um, mm-hmm. and potentially maybe sort of expose me more to wanting to do computational, computational work, which yep. is also why I'm leaning towards my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that it also, like some of the, some of especially the neuroimmune work down at Weehive really just highlighted the, the complexity of the challenge that we face um, in terms of neurodegenerative disease. And there's so many different dimensions to, you know, what can go wrong in the brain. Mm. Um, that, yeah, was sort of like, wow, I might actually want to spend a little bit more time doing this um, and mm. actually tackling this problem in a, in a PhD. Um, and But then I think the, those challenges were, you know, independent. I had some family members mm. go through neurodegenerative disease. Mm. Um, and I think that was also a big driver of course. In, in making me, you know, go towards studying a PhD. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think... The undergrad immunology was really just cool subjects, mm. really good supervisors. Mm. You know, that's kind of like the dabbling that I think you need to do as an undergrad. For sure. Join the cool labs and work with cool people, almost exactly. arguably more important than the project to an extent. Well, I think, yeah, that's one of like, the pieces of advice I got as an undergrad was mm. just who cares about the project? Yeah. Just work with a great supervisor yeah. um, and, and a great lab team and just sure. try some, some cool stuff. Mm. Um, doesn't matter, you know, whether you're looking at the electron transport chain or whether you're looking at um, HIV vaccine immunology. Mm. Um, if, if you're working with a good supervisor, I think that's the main, the main, main important bit. Mm. You know, mm. Gotcha. Maybe on that topic as well, with kind of your research experience, mm. what have you found the most? What, what problem have you worked on that you think is the most challenging, and what? neuroscientific challenges are you most um, curious about as well? I know you've already mentioned. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so what have I worked on mm-hmm. my undergrad that... You found the most challenging. It's a good question. I think probably some of the stuff I did down at WeHi. Um, so we were basically looking at how innate inflammation um, contributes to uh, the development of frontotemporal dementia, mm-hmm. um, but also um, motor neuron disease, um, and uh, basically looking to try and find small molecule inhibitors um, of these two molecules called uh, CGAS and STING to try and um, rescue the phenotype of the animals with MND and also mm-hmm. um, frontotemporal dementia. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, like that was really like a huge challenge because even though we've precisely targeted CGAS and STING, which were responsible for the phenotype um, due to uh, like some mitochondrial defects, we only really, like you were only really seeing a significant but still quite small rescue uh, in, in the function of those animals. Mm. And so it sort of illustrated to me, it's like, wow, if you've got, like you know the precise target and you know you've got this like small molecule inhibitor mm. and you're still only getting this like sort of marginal improvement you know, what does that mm. then, then mean when we have something where we don't know how it's exactly working or mm. we don't have a precise target? Mm. Um, so I think that was a, that was a pretty big challenge um, for, for me, but also I think in the mm. wider field. Um, 
Yeah, Sorry, to, I was just going to yeah, say yeah. to expand on that. So we understand the mechanism, but the it's like therapeutic benefit, is it right that it's yeah. not completely changing? Well, the yeah, pathology. I mean, like that's also that's I don't want to like yeah, of mis- mischaracterize it here. Like we mm-hmm. obviously don't know the entire uh, like ideology of um, MND and, and also frontotemporal dementia, mm-hmm. but in this in this particular model, mm-hmm. um, the 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 C gas and the, and the sting. Inflammation was was driving like quite a severe phenotype, mm. and yet even though we knew it, we knew that was the case. When we did target those molecules, you were still only seeing like a significant but not complete rescue of, of function. Mm. Uh, so I think yeah. I think that's yeah that that was like quite a big challenge. Um, mm. In terms of uh, broader mm. scientific challenges, I think one of the big ones through you know work that we're doing at the moment here mm-hmm. at UCID. Um, mm-hmm. Is actually to do with psychiatric populations, uh, and I think, like I heard a really cool stat the other day that uh, once you have a patient with you know major depressive disorder, and you get them on antidepressants, mm-hmm. you're only ever going to have sort of like a thirty percent yeah. remission rate. Crazy, right? Which is just like yeah, insane. yeah. Um, and so I think a big challenge is in sort of these like silent diseases mm. actually identifying them early enough so that we can have meaningful intervention mm-hmm. because we know that psychiatric disorders and, and you know mental health more, more broadly is a huge systemic societal issue that's right um, which is much more so the case than uh, diseases such as motor neuron disease or or frontotemporal dementia or alzheimer's which are obviously still so crucial with our you know aging mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. but potentially going to be less of a burden than some of these psychiatric disorders that's right um, so I think I see that as like a huge challenge, which is obviously you know really exciting because there's some important research to be done, but also quite scary at the same time. Mm. I'd say that's probably the, the main challenge at the moment that I that I see. Very exciting. Certainly, that stat also the thirty percent. Yeah, <laughs> crazy, right? Like all the theories and knowledge that we have with you know SSRIs, tricyclics, yeah. etc. Yet the efficacy, obviously, those for the patients that work, amazing, mm. life changes, right? But the fact that we have this accumulation of knowledge yet still don't, I think to me is very humbling as you know, scientists or yeah, researchers that we do need to take, there's this incredibly complex system of the human brain and just the human in general. And when we reduce it to certain things, it doesn't always come out the way we want it. Very, very interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's sort of like that the, there are so many different modalities that we can integrate mm-hmm. but often people just look at them in like very binary ways or like they're sort of yeah. working in their own yeah. little silo yeah and it's not you know collaborating with all the, the volumes of data that we actually have mm. um, and i think that's especially in terms of neuroscience it's a really important thing is to integrate all of this data mm-hmm. uh, and actually get this sort of like diverse view of the way the brain's functioning mm. um, and i think that's probably why we don't have uh like a, a pretty significant way of curing or um, treating yeah. psychiatric disorders like, like MDD. Yeah. So once you fix that problem, Max, expect yeah, big yeah, things. Yeah. Um, um, with your technical assistance. Of course. Of course. <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, speaking more on data and obviously the hype around AI, yeah. I, I was curious as a young researcher to kind of get your take on some of the things. So with all the current buzz and the hype around generative AI, mm. how do you think that will inform how we study the brain? Uh, yeah, so I think there's probably like two, there's probably two ways. I think the first, which is getting a lot of attention at the moment, um, is drug design or pro 
protein design. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's like another, was another one of those sort of paradigm shifting moments. I think for everyone at the moment, it was like, oh, chat GPT, like, oh my God, AI is going to yeah. like take over the world. Yeah. But for me, it was really like 2021 when AlphaFold came out from DeepMind. Yes, of course. And rather than a PhD student spending four years modeling one protein, <laughs> I could spend four seconds on my laptop, type in the protein or the gene name and get a superb 3D crystal structure. Yes. So, so, so I think that was sort of like the big, mm. holy, like, yeah. Yeah, holy crap moment <laughs> for me. Um, but I think now that, you know, AI tools are potentially more widespread, um, having that similar modeling process but with, with drug design. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having generative AI, you know, come up with all kinds of different molecules and different drugs that we've never been able to design or never even thought of before um, and then testing those out. I think that's a really exciting uh, you know, possibility or space for, for neurodegenerative conditions, especially given that we have a lack of treatment options. Um, you know, for example, there was a paper that came, or a study, no, a phase two trial that ended uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's a monoclonal antibody in the US and it was like amazing, mm-hmm. but still they only had like 35%, uh, 35% um, protection in, in mental decline in, in Alzheimer's patients, or 35% mm-hmm. reduction in mental decline. Right. Some patients. And that was like, you know, a landmark sort yeah. of finding. Yeah. But it's like, surely we can do that on 35%. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's like ambitious or naive, but I think we could potentially use AI to, um, you know, mm. come up with some new drugs. For sure. Um, and, and test those out quite quickly. Uh, I think the other thing is also, you know, going back to what we talked about before in terms of this more like cognitive neuroscience, in terms of how are these models actually performing this sort of like infer or how they're performing this like zero shot learning mm-hmm. and then can we sort of like maybe to use an NLT back propagate <laughs> can we sort of like work out yeah. how they're doing it mm-hmm. and maybe you know superimpose that onto our brain that's can right we actually derive new insights into mm-hmm. neural function um through you know understanding how ai works mm-hmm. um, i think that's obviously less pathologically relevant but yes. i think it would be really cool um hopefully some, get some really cool insights from that I love that because it's kind of like you're going back from how the OG, so to speak, <laughs> neural nets being inspired by the brain and we're going almost backwards, right? Yeah. Which are from yeah, yeah. like the computational system inspiring how we think about our biological systems. Yeah, well. absolutely. Well, because I mean, we still don't, like we still don't have precise models for, no. for how the brain performs, like zero-shot inference and things like that. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, anything more we can learn, the better, I reckon. Mm. Very exciting. And maybe along a similar vein... Now, going outside of purely the world of, let's say, neuroscience and even medicine, what do you think is currently quite overhyped with this whole buzzword of AI? And mm. what is a little bit underhyped, aside from things you've talked about already? Oh, I think the overhyped thing is going to be all those like, thin wrapper tools that, mm-hmm. that people put on to like, yeah. GPT-4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, there's just so many of them on Twitter. Like, it's hundreds of thousands, yeah. right? Yeah, everyone's just overhyping them, like, mm-hmm. you know, save... Mm-hmm. three minutes on your, your gmail or you know set up automated yep. calendar invites yeah yep, i think, yep, I think yep. that in itself is just like insanely mm-hmm. um insanely overhyped mm-hmm. um three minutes though on alpha fold gets you like a billion proteins right so well, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> like focus more on alpha fold yeah yeah, less, yeah. On, less on like gmail time saving <laughs> that are really just gpt4 and some fancy ui that's right that's probably a bit harsh but um <laughs> anyway i think that's probably overhyped mm-hmm. um in terms of underhyped, oh, I'm, I'm really not across well, well, mm. acro- 
across the, the, the AIML field to, to probably say something significant there. I think the, the one really cool feature that I think is probably relevant to um, like medicine and research in general is like vector embeddings that, that AI uses. So you know how, mm, yeah, for example, that? like if we give it text, it represents the text in the form of numbers in the form mm -hmm. of a vector, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's conceivably like representing all different kinds of information in the form of, of numbers. Mm -hmm. And so if we could then, you know, integrate all of our different data from the lab, like all of our different omics data, like proteomics, mm -hmm. genomics, et cetera, mm -hmm. if we could all represent that in the form of vectors, surely we'd be able to derive, derive some really cool insights yes. and integrate data that we haven't previously been able to because the AI can, you know, integrate mm -hmm. all of this in the form of vectors. Different forms, yes. I think that sort of like more foundational um, like capability of AI mm. is something that hasn't probably been spoken enough, mm. uh, spoken about enough. Mm. Um, and I think therefore it's probably a little bit underhyped. Mm. Um, just because, yeah, like as we talked about before, right, like there's so many different forms of data that of, often aren't shared or integrated. And if we could use AI to potentially, um, you know, solve that problem, mm. that, that would be huge. Mm. And people haven't actually spoken about that enough, I think. Yeah, right. I think it's showing your your researcher brain, Max, that you don't like surface level stuff, you like deep <laughs> stuff a lot more. Well, maybe we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. Um, and kind of like, a, I guess, uh, another branch of that question, mm. um, speaking a little bit towards your, your past humanities background, <laughs> your, your, your curiosities, um, obviously one of the kind of big thoughts around how this technology will influence the world and, you know, how social media already has is that currently we're so information saturated, right? Mm. So many different sources of news, so many different um, things that, that, can, that it can be difficult to know what we trust and not trust, et cetera. Yeah. How do you think the emergence of generative technology might change, you know, how we receive information or how that kind of like news medium looks? Are you just testing me because you maybe watched that documentary? Last Quite potentially, week? <laughs> the AI dilemma. If anyone's listening, great. Right. <laughs> I recommend it. Highly, I also highly recommend. Highly it. recommend. Um, yeah, I suppose. I'd like to take one example from the AI dilemma. The thing that really struck me was they said that the twenty twenty four US election is going to be the last human election mm -hmm. in terms of where you you know you can trust that you're directly receiving information from you know, humans or, or the candidate at large, etc. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't necessarily know how it will change um, yeah. society at large. Obviously, we know, you know, we, we couldn't have imagined how social media has changed our dependency on technology. Um, yeah, I, I think the thing I'm really interested in uh, is how people actually form relationships with this form of technology mm. because we're already seeing like primitive things like, you know, the Snapchat AI bot That's right. um, or replica people are actually like becoming quite invested mm. in these relationships. Um, and so I think maybe this is not directly answering your question, but I think it'll be super interesting to see how humans actually form mm. relationships with AI, mm. how dependent they become on that relationship and how, you know, maybe sustainable that might be mm. um, in the future. So I think, I think that'll be really interesting. Um, to go back to your question, I think, yeah, humans will just become like, they'll just want shorter and shorter forms of information because it can be delivered in that way. Mm. Um, AI can, you know, as we've seen with Instagram Reels or TikTok, people just have this uh, desire to consume like, shorter attention-grabbing 
information. Mm. Um, and so I think that'll probably become similar with you know things like news and, mm. and media more broadly. Mm. Um, people will just if AI can feed and deliver it in that way, mm. you know, whether someone you know synthesizes the news in a in a in a mm. attention grabbing you know short way, mm. I feel like people will really latch onto that, mm. and you know that will probably then permeate the rest of the rest of their lives, mm. independent of you know just short entertaining videos they might see on TikTok. Yeah, instead of the reels you get on Instagram, TikTok, maybe news, yeah, news version. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. News or like your TV news at night, the radio, mm-hmm. um, the sports results, things like that. Mm. Maybe that's a completely incorrect prediction, but yeah. I feel like that's beginning to sort of like permeate mm. a lot of things that people consume. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think... Um, I, I think I do agree, and that's kind of what troubles me to an mm. extent. Mm. Um, again, I'm mindful that I'm probably parroting a lot of the, the content I've watched around this area. <laughs> it was good content. Though. It was good content, which makes me want to parrot it. But it, there is the question of, is this shorter and shorter attention span, this you know optimization for what we want, ideal for the human condition? Is, mm. is this Are we optimizing for the right thing, right? And I feel like that's always the question with these the, the implementation of these models and whatever technology that we interface with especially you know that that example you mentioned of the human to computer interaction stage of things right mm. is the ai bot that's on the other side optimizing for a good or quote unquote good metric yeah. or you know just spending more time with it which i would argue might not be the best yeah and i think also like just like critical thinking capacity yeah <laughs> i mean spoon know. fit everything Oh, yeah. Mm. If I can go on the chat GPT and be like, you know, write me, you know, an email yeah. or like do any matter of everyday tasks, which you know, they don't require significant amounts of brain capacity, but they require yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Over time, that like completely changes the way you, you, know, you think and mm. you, you just engage with everyday society. Mm. Um, mm. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. I'm also a little bit worried mm. about mm. Um, the way people consume information and then use these tools. but. Mm. I don't know, I guess it's probably in the pudding, right? Yeah. And it sounds like an interesting neurological question later on as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think the one thing is that I'm quite interested in, this is like going again really off <laughs> Go on, go on. How the rise of neurodegenerative conditions correlates with the rise of mm. social media tools of course. like yeah. you know, TikTok, yeah. Instagram Reels, but then also the, the deployment of AI. Yeah. Because, you know, there's been like these epidemiological studies that show the less you use your brain, you know, the more likely you are of developing mm-hmm. you know, certain cognitive um, conditions like you know, dementia and Alzheimer's. That's right. And so is it conceivable that in the future, if we have less critical thinking capacity, we're not exercising the brain as a muscle, mm. we actually see you know, the rise of these conditions maybe earlier or mm. in a more significant way, mm. um, which I think that's just like a random thought of mine. But yeah. I think yeah. it would be really interesting to see, especially yeah. as society as well. Mm. Of so. course, it's, it's very multifaceted, right, the way we interface with technology. But I'd be very mm. curious, kind of like, th- there's always this talk, I would say, of like how technology rewires your brain, obviously, yeah. in a very uh, uh, layman's term of thinking yeah. about it. Um, but I'd be curious, kind of, as these gen- technology generations change, obviously, when uh, we were like born and as kids, we had the access to social media and iPads and et cetera. Yeah. I wonder if you look at these distinct populations, how there, if there is like some kind of neurological difference in yeah. how we think and et cetera as well. Yeah, it'd be fascinating just like 
Well, I mean, it's obviously difficult to do now, but like yeah. a longitudinal study on yeah, like the, the, these different cohorts of people, mm. like what's different? Mm. You know, we do imaging, like we do in the lab here. Mm. Can you detect any difference in imaging? Mm. Um, if you know, measure other biomarkers, mm. yeah. it's a really cool thing to think about. Something for the Kirkby Lab 20 years <laughs> down the line as well. Thank you, Max, so much for hopping on. It's no been worries. a pleasure, and I know both have to head off soon. Yeah. Um, final question for yourself. What's the biggest piece of advice you'd give to your undergraduate self? Uh, I think it's just take every opportunity you get. Um, work hard. Yeah, not even just work hard, but like just expose yourself to these opportunities and then take them. Mm. Um, I think the best thing you can do as an undergrad it's just like cold email a professor mm. or, you know, cold email a NGO that you're interested in, like, with working, um, or working with, sorry. Mm. Um, because, you know, if you don't expose yourself in that way, those opportunities aren't going to come to you. But then simultaneously, after you do send that cold email, follow up, yep. you know, take the opportunity to maybe go to a different city or, or do a different project mm. um, because you don't necessarily know what that's going to, you know, bring you. Um, I think, yeah, as an undergrad, your role is to just be interested in a bunch of different stuff, learn yeah. as much as you can, take all the opportunities you can. Um, and yeah, I think I tried to follow that, but it's 100% the same advice I would give any undergrad. For sure. Whether they're in Australia or, or around the world. Explore your interests because you'll never know where they really take you. Yeah, the exactly. Yeah. Very succinct by putting it. <laughs> nah, thank you, Max, so much. It's been an awesome chat. No worries. Thanks so much for having me on. Hopefully I didn't ramble too much. No, uh, that was brilliant, Max. That was brilliant. <laughs>